welcome you to Episode 8 of Everything Compliance. The top roundtable podcast in compliance, where along with four of the top compliance practitioners and commentators in the field of compliance, we take a deep dive into various compliance topics. Today is the first part of a two-part episode dedicated exclusively to the recently released Department of Justice Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs. In this episode, we take a deep dive from each of our commentators' perspectives. As I indicated, this will be the first of a two-part. Today, we will have Matt Kelly and Mike Volkoff. Next week, Jay Rosen and Jonathan Armstrong. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Everything Compliance. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and welcome to another episode of Everything Compliance, where with the most distinguished panel in compliance, we take a deep dive into particular topics or issues. The panel is, of course, Mike Volkoff, the founder of the Volkoff Law Group, Matt Kelly, founder and editor of Radical Compliance, Jay Rosen, now Mr. Monitors with Affiliated Monitors, and Jonathan Armstrong from the Cordery Firm in London. Today, we are going to devote the entire episode to an exclusive look at the recently released Department of Justice Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs, which was posted on the DOJ website in February, and our own Matt Kelly broke the story to the greater compliance community and uh, circulated uh, the word of it out to the rest of us. So kudos to Matt and his journalism hat for uh, breaking stories. But uh, Matt, I thought that would be a good way to maybe ask you, uh, what do you see from uh, the evaluation? Is it a continuation of things that you've heard and read from the Department of Justice over the past 15 or 18 months? Does it interact, intersect rather with some of the things you've written about in terms of SEC regulatory enforcement of the SC, FCPA? And finally, does it really interact or intersect at all with things like the COSO 2013 framework or the COSO ERM framework? Mm -hmm. Well, um, I think this is great, great guidance for corporate compliance executives. Uh, if you have not downloaded it and printed it out and read it yet, you should, uh, because it identifies 11 broad categories of interest the Justice Department would look at with your compliance program. And under the 11, originally I said there were 46 questions across those 11 categories, but really there's 47, 46 groups of questions. But then you get into the weeds of each group of questions. There's even more. There's just dozens and dozens and dozens of very specific questions the department might ask you. Uh, certainly all of us and everybody listening to this program, I think foremost we would be interested in FCPA compliance programs, but really the Justice Department put this out for effectiveness of any corporate compliance program. Uh, so you know, even if you do not have much FCPA exposure for some reason, you, you could still take this guidance and look at it and try and map out how your corporate compliance program might need to work for, oh, I don't know, anything from insider trading to privacy to effective accounting controls. Uh, Tom, to get to your point about how does this guidance relate to other things we've seen in the past, I actually think the spirit of what this guidance is trying to do is most similar genetically, I suppose, to the COSO framework of internal control. When COSO put out that updated framework in 2013, they were very clearly telling internal auditors 
and internal control people, if you want to bring, build out a framework that is versatile for any number of issues you might come up with. And originally, COSO was all about financial reporting, and it was all about the Sarbanes-Oxley Act. That new framework in 2013 was designed to be able to encompass any big type of risk that you need to manage at your organization. This gets to the same goal because it really is about how do you embed the ideas of good compliance into your operations. Um, I'll give you one specific example here from the DOJ guidance. There's a whole section about how employees are empowered to carry out transactions. And so the questions get to things like, how was the misconduct in question, if you are under investigation from the DOJ? They might ask, how was the misconduct at your company actually funded? Did employees in a position to approve payments know how to identify questionable payments? How were policies rolled out so that employees would know what's expected of them? Now, those are actual questions in this DOJ guidance we're talking about. They're very specific, and they are very much about not, not did you have a policy against improper payments, but how did you get people to understand what an improper payment was, how they were supposed to prevent it, and did you understand, therefore, how did you wind up with an improper payment anyways that we are investigating? Those are the sort of thing. That's the thrust of this. Uh, DOA guidance in this particular section. Um, clearly, they are trying to break down the process at your company that you had that wasn't working very well, that led to an improper payment, that led to, therefore, probably an FCPA investigation you had. But, you know, this is not just, did you have a policy that says no improper payments? This is more, how did you try and make it work? And do you understand why it didn't work? Uh, we would not have seen that level of detail five or ten years ago. We certainly, you know, we were getting more glimpses of it in enforcement actions, in speeches, and you know, the earlier DOJ guidance from I think 2012 or 13 that came out. Um, you know, the ten hallmarks of an effective compliance program. But you know, when you're talking about dozens and dozens of questions that we, the Justice Department, might ask you, the Compliance Department about how your program actually works. It's just, it is a rich, rich source of material to let you then therefore reverse engineer how your business processes should work and how you should be embedding compliance into them. Um, the other thing I would point out is I bet that the audit committees at large companies would love this sort of thing because the audit committee is not in charge of FCPA compliance is in charge of making sure there is a system in the company to prevent FCPA misconduct as much as possible. This all gets to what should the system do? How should it work? What are the capabilities your compliance program should have? You know, how are you baking all of this into the operation? And it just gets to a stronger idea of risk management all through the organization that's exactly what audit committees want to see. They don't want to dictate all of the questions you should answer. They want to know that our in-house people know the questions to ask, know the questions that they'll have to answer. And this is a good roadmap for all those questions. So I just, you know, I think most people are delighted with this guidance. That's what I've, I've got so far, and I'll, I'll get off my soapbox for now. 
Well, you can stay on the soapbox because one of the things that you write about quite a bit is a much broader intersection of risk management than simply FCPA compliance. You obviously talk about ERM. You talk about uh, the, the way uh, COSO interacts, but you also talk about the way internal audit, SOX, uh, Sarbanes-Oxley, uh, Section 404B, and a variety of uh, other rules, regulations, and policies and procedures all interact in terms of risk management. Is is this a uh, a way for the compliance practitioner to start thinking about that broader question of risk management as well? Uh, I think it is a way for them to get started. And the very first thought that should go through your head when you do get started is, okay, I cannot do this alone. Um, and compliance officers cannot do risk management alone. It is something that many different executives need to do as a team approach. If we want to use the analogy that the compliance the officer is the quarterback or the coach or the primary care doctor with the team of specialists, you know, there's all sorts of metaphors we could use there. But you know, you brought up the point about internal audit. What I loved about this extra guidance is that the very first question it does ask among the scores of questions. Uh, did the company perform a root cause analysis of the misconduct at hand and whether there were any prior indications of trouble? Compliance officer cannot do a root cause analysis very well. An internal audit executive can do a root cause analysis. This is what internal auditors do for a living. So if you really want to have an effective compliance program, you're going to have to be buddy-buddy with your internal audit function, which you should be. And I think most compliance officers would wholly agree that they want to be joined at the hip with internal audit. Um, you know, how can you identify where the weak process, spots in your processes are? How do you seal them up? Um, you know, this, this guidance really drives home the point that you need to ha take a team approach with your internal auditor uh, to get at you know, the evidence of what is or is not working. Uh, you need to take a team approach with business unit executives. Have they been properly trained on what the policy is? Were they involved in creating the policy in the first place so that the policy would actually work? And I have seen many examples over the years where that did not take place, and therefore the policy did not really work, but it was very easy to evade or ignore. Um, you know, and that once you have those mechanisms going, the muscle memory to use those processes for other types of risk, it's very similar. You know, if you want to do anti-bribery, that's great, and you should, but you will find the process to build a good anti-bribery program is not that different than the process for a great anti-human trafficking program or a great due diligence or vendor management program. Um, so I do think that that's, you know, whether the, the Justice Department specifically sat down and plotted, this is the ultimate outcome we want, I don't know, but it's the outcome that you can achieve and it's a good outcome. So compliance officers might as well roll with it and just go for it. Mike, hey, Matt, this is uh, Mike, Matt, this is Mike. I wanted to ask you, can yeah. you give us the, uh, the backdrop story of, uh, how you were able to sneak into the Justice Department, find this document, and get out alive? Or, oh, uh, this, this is the best part of it, is that this just emerged like some sort of immaculate documentation was suddenly there. Um, I will be, I will give credit where credit is due. I think that White and Case was the first firm to note that this guidance existed. 
And they noted it on some internal blog they have. And I had a Google search that caught it. And then suddenly, poof, it was there. And it came to me on a Friday evening, I think. I said, this is news. I haven't seen this before. And I spent Saturday morning uh, looking around on other websites, trying to figure out, well, if this has been up for three or four days, I can't be the first one to the party. And um, you know, the Justice Department did not announce this formally. It did not show off exactly where on the website it was. It took me another week or so to find exactly where it would be on the Justice Department fraud section website. All I had was the URL, and I knew that the document was legitimate, but I didn't know exactly when it was posted or how it got there. Uh, so the, the secret sauce was just a good Google al algorithm. That's probably why they run the world for enterprise search. Um, and then once it was there, I just double-checked in a few different places. I realized nobody else had written about it, and I just put it out there, um, which you know, I, I won't beat up the Justice Department too much. They're in the midst of a transition. I admit, I imagine that there's a lot of change and uncertainty going on there, but it is a shame that they didn't you know, tout this with horns and bows and strings and streams because this is just great stuff that they put out there. So Mike Volkow. Well, uh, I, I was just going to say that what's amazing to me, and, and Tom, I don't know if you've heard anything about this, is that you know, unlike the FCPA guidance that came out in 2012, when they used, you know, they used it politically and put out a lot of press around it, and came out with a fancy document. I, for the life of me, can't figure out why it it wasn't trumpeted. And I hate to use that term, but uh, but how it wasn't sort of promoted more. I, I don't understand what what was going on. Maybe they were trying to keep it below the radar screen during this transition for fear that, you know, somebody at the higher levels would see it and say, oh, we want to review this. I don't know. So, Mike, uh, kind of following up from that um, and looking at this really from more of a legal angle, uh, can you see how this might play out uh, during an ongoing FCPA investigation, uh, particularly with someone like yourself, uh, outside counsel, any negotiations you might have with the department directly? And really, do you see any line drawn from the Yates memo through the various DOJ uh, announcements and pronouncements, the FCPA pilot program announced about a year ago, uh, up to this evaluation? Well, I think it uh, directly impacts legally uh, what constitutes uh, satisfactory remediation under the pilot program and uh, and I and I uh, you know I sort of joined the cheers from Matt on the importance of this document I think that where you, if you look at the natural progression here from the FCPA guidance in 2012 then we had the pilot program which in the remediation section, uh, Wei Chen was supposedly the architect of the questions that were, or the issues that were listed there, uh, raising new issues beyond the FCPA guidance. And now we have this checklist, which sort of consolidates issues that she had raised before, but actually raises many uh, additional issues. So the ball has moved again. Uh, so I think it has a real significant impact on those companies that are right now before the Justice Department 
making presentations about how their compliance program is now effective. And the standard for remediation is even more, uh, you know, the bar is even higher. But I think the brilliance of the document is that it's questions. It's not written out. There's no, you know, scoring system. There's no sort of idea that you have to, you know, meet certain requirements and reach a certain level uh, or a score. But at least we all know now what the questions are that they are going to ask when evaluating our program. And in, 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 in the brilliance of it is that it may have companies make more efforts than were otherwise necessary because knowing lawyers and how compulsive they are, we will say to our clients, you know what, we can't say no to any of these questions. Uh, and so we may impose even greater requirements uh, on the compliance program and the compliance, the chief compliance uh, officer in the system. I want to take one other second, though, to uh, there. There are a couple of really important issues that I think are highlighted in the questions themselves. Uh, one is that I. Uh, there are some real serious questions about the commitment and conduct of the senior executives at a company and their sort of uh, support for compliance. And I think this reflects the fact that we've had these, you know, not just FCPA cases. We've had VW. We've had Takata. We've had, and now ZTE, I guess. Uh, we've had cases where senior management is not only involved, but almost orchestrating, uh, you know, uh, criminal conduct. And remember, the fraud section does a lot more than just FCPA. So I think that's really significant uh, in terms of the standards. And then the second I would say is watch out chief compliance officers. Um, I think they're uh, getting as close as they can without specifically saying it, but uh, if you have a chief compliance officer in a big company reporting to a general counsel, uh, it's almost at the point where I think they're going to say, I mean, it's almost with a wink and a nod. They don't want to specifically require it, but the way the questions are crafted, it's almost like it's impossible to satisfy uh, the requirements. Um, and so I think those are two issues, and it, of course, reflects, like Matt said, uh, her, Wei Chen's point about how do you operationalize a program and coordinate and bring in everybody, all the functions that are involved. But, you know, this is going to, we're going to look back on this whole time period from 2012 to, uh, you know, from the FCPA guidance to this, and just to be my doomsayer for a moment. You know, when uh, when the next financial collapse uh, of some sort or scandal hits, uh, you can rest assured that Congress is going to take all of this work that's been done and, you know, to come. And I'm not saying it is the solution, but when they see misconduct that leads to some scandal of some sort, uh, they're going to look to these requirements and the work that's done here and try to uh, impose a lot of this uh, through laws and regulations. Uh, so the more, so I tell clients, look, you know, not only is this good practice, 
but eventually uh, Congress, because they can't come up with any other ideas, will gravitate to this and, uh, and enact requirements around this. So that's my two cents, but uh, thank, thank goodness for Matt and his uh, spy work. Uh, I think it's really helped the compliance profession a lot. And I would note that there is a lot of, I mean, I wrote blog postings on this and I know Tom, you did too, but there is, I mean, th those were some of the highest recorded, um, you know, readership I ever had on my blog related to this document. And uh, so I think there's a, a great hunger out there for people to, to sort of take this document and figure out what it is. Thank God uh, Matt found it. So, Mike, there's two specific questions I wanted to ask you. Um, one is uh, around an area that you have really started focusing on and, and writing about, which is payment systems. In the operational integration section, the, uh, the, the Department of Justice specifically calls out payment systems. How is the misconduct in question funded uh, or to de 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 devolve to Watergate? How do you follow the money? Uh, any ideas on, on why the DOJ is finally starting to focus in on payment systems, or is it something that uh, you've, you're thinking has evolved as well? Well, my, I, I noticed it, but I think it actually reflects the FCC's work, because I think the FCC started to focus on this as they sort of built internal controls cases uh, in the FCPA area, they started to really get into the weeds uh, on how is, how did, like Matt said earlier on, but the question is, how did this money this that was used improperly, how was it released from the company, how was it authorized, and how was it paid? And so what I've seen, starting with the FCC, and then DOJ started to dig in a little bit more, starting with, I think, the BioRad case, uh, and others after that into the payment systems. And so now, uh, which I think is, it reflects the fact that the compliance message is being integrated into how does your accounts payable system works? Uh, how does it work? Uh, when you get an invoice or whatever, do you, who inspects it to make sure that these are legitimate services, that these are contracted for and there are no improper fees? And uh, so I think uh, that's a great question from uh, the Justice Department, because now uh, in a lot of my work, and I'm sure all of your work, you're seeing more focus uh, on asking how is money released from the company? And let's make the accounts payable people, they're trained and then sensitive to look at this and identify red flags and then raise it and escalate it to the compliance uh, team. And Mike, the other area it, which really warmed my heart was in the um, uh, prong number 10, third-party management. It specifically called out the management of the relationship, or, or what I would say is managing the relationship after the contract is signed. How would you suggest a chief compliance officer think about these series of questions in managing a third-party relationship after you've done the first four steps of a business justification questionnaire, due diligence, and appropriate contract terms and conditions? Well, I thought that that was a great question, too. And notice it was um, it was uh, included in training, too, in the training questions, which is what do you do to train your responsible, this is a great term, responsible control persons. 
And so in the third-party due diligence area now, the person who is overseeing that third party or engaging in that with that third party is suddenly in the business area is suddenly made and needs to be made responsible for, uh, you know, looking over contracts for red flags, looking over relationships for red flags, and then bringing it to the chief compliance officer. Mention was we are talking the day after. The Trump administration just fined ZTE Corporation nearly $900 million. It was for rampant misconduct at the senior level all the way down through. It was on export controls rather than foreign bribery. But nonetheless, $900 million for a $15 billion company, that's a big deal. And it would not have happened without Jeff Sessions and other senior leaders in the Trump administration who allegedly, cynics would say, are never going to publish punish corporate crime again. Yes, they will. And we have some evidence here. And not long ago, the acting commissioner of the SEC, Michael Piwawar, he also said he is very open to imposing civil penalties on a company for FCPA misconduct. I don't think we will see corporate penalties as often because they will want to look for individuals who are committing misconduct. But if the circumstance arise that your company is systemically endorsing misconduct at the top and it's turning a blind eye and there really is corporate liability here. Yeah, this administration is still going to give it to you with both barrels and people should not you know, just willy nilly assume Donald Trump anti-regulation. Therefore, we're scot free. There's no penalties ever again. I, I just I do not think that is the case. So, uh, Mike, we also had. Um a uh, argument in the Second Circuit around uh, jurisdiction for individuals under the FCPA, where the Trump administration uh, orally argued uh, based upon the uh, briefing of the Obama administration. And I would point to that as another um, reason that, as Matt articulated, that enforcement is going to continue and going to continue most uh, abruptly as well. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again, and I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Everything Compliance. Next week, we'll we'll have the completion of this episode where we take a look at the DOJ's recently released evaluation of corporate compliance programs with Jay Rosen's thoughts and Jonathan Armstrong across the pond from London. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate us as it would help our rankings and help us get the word out about the Top Roundtable podcast in compliance. Also, we're developing a mailbag episode, so if you have any questions, you can email them to me at tfox at tfoxclaw.com. Finally, everyone's writings on this topic will be listed in the show notes, so you have a great resource for the evaluation going forward. This is Tom Fox. I hope you will tune in next week for the completion of our exploration of the evaluation of corporate compliance programs on everything compliance. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.